Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast channel about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Rob Pericelli and in this episode I talk to Dr. Manny Fernandez, a man whose name might not instantly ring any bells, FM or otherwise. But whilst you may not have heard his name, you will have almost certainly heard his sounds that have featured heavily in almost all of Yamaha's FM synths from the DX7 Mark II right up to today's montage and Modi X workstations. Tell me a little bit about uh, Manny Fernandez before Yamaha. What was your first musical interest? What sparked the enthusiasm? We are fortunate that a close family friend of ours um, is a, was a top-flight jazz and L.A. studio guy, and he had a home studio, so I got exposed to an Arp Odyssey many, 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 many moons ago. Um, and you know, the, his kids and me and my brother, we would jam in his studio uh, when he was out, uh, out working, and that was sort of my first uh, exposure to electronics was uh, an Arp Odyssey way back in, I want to say, about 70s. 778. And, and, and then where, where did it progress from from there? So what was your first, maybe what was the first synthesizer you owned? Uh, well, thankfully, I didn't have to buy my own for a while because I had access to borrowing a lot of gear from our friend's dad. So you know, I got to play with uh, JX3Ps, Prophet 5s, uh, Rhodes Chroma, uh, Prophet T8, all that kind of fun stuff and moving his gear around and getting it set up for him. Um, so I didn't really have to buy my own gear until I went off to college, and, and that's when I was able to uh, buy a Pro One. So I bought that brand new, and uh, shortly thereafter acquired the Arp Odyssey from our friend's dad, and that was the first two synths I owned. You, you mentioned that you were doing programming for this this friend's father, and it, it, was that how you got the bug into sound design for, for synthesizers? Was that where it all started? Yeah, I mean, basically that's where it uh, it started, being able to just, you know, have a synth that you could just twiddle around and figure out what it does. Um, because at that point, you know, it wasn't anything that it was learned. I was in high school and just, you know, twiddled around there when we got together and, you know, played with uh, me and my brother and his sons in his studio, just uh, doodling around. These were synthesizers that were... Um didn't have any patch memory, so you know you you were creating stuff, and then it was gone. And then start yeah, start all over, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But that's that's a big philosophy that I'm actually a big fan of. Things that uh, disappear. Before we get to your your time with with Yamaha and the FM synthesis of the DX7, how was your progression to that point? Did you get into sampling at all? Did you have any exposure to other digital technology? Were you aware of what? was going on with Dr. John Chowning. Right, so, um, so when I was in college, what was interesting is that um, after I was there for two years, I found out that we had a really nifty electronic music studio at our, uh, at our, at our college. Um, I went to a, uh, a college called UC Davis, which is outside of Sacramento here in California, um, and its nearest neighbor is UC Berkeley. And so the gentleman in our electronic music department was out of Berkeley and was, uh, very close to Don Buchla. So I had no idea we had a full 200 modular system. 
a little electronic music easel in the suitcase sitting here in a uh, studio for anybody who signed up for the class to have unlimited access to. So um, that was like, oh, hello, because I was in college from 79 to 83. That's when all the synth bands hit you know, big internationally. Um, and so that's what was my initial interest is, you know, that kind of stuff from a, from a pop uh, rock kind of standpoint. But I was also into the, um, oh, let's call it the uh, uh, ambient uh, orchestral mishmashes. So Tangerine Dream, those kinds of things. So I listened to all the stuff. Um, so that's what drove me to learn analog synthesis. And I started taking the university classes to learn all the classic techniques. We literally started with tape, tape loops, music concrete, editing your sounds as tones on cutting blocks, your envelopes are the shape you cut the tape, and going through the whole history of everything and learning all the uh, science behind subtractive synthesis. And about this time, you know, digital synthesis was also coming online um, and I picked up a uh, uh, album, uh, one of the early uh, Larry Fast Synergy albums. Oh yes. And uh, it had a section on one of his tunes that was generated on the um, uh, digital system that Max Matthews put together back on the East Coast, which eventually became the GDS. And it was uh, very enlightening to hear this rapid agitato solo string line that the harmonic structure on it was just so crisp and precise in the middle of his washes of analog stuff, I'm going, hey, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, and that's when um, I started trying to figure out, you know, what's available for that. So right behind, right at the time I graduated university is when um, this first Synclavier came out, which came out of Stanford, which again is very local uh, to where I uh, where I was, um, and. That was just like a level of control and specificity of control that just really interested me. Um, because the more I got into synthesis, the more I wanted to create exactly what structures I wanted to with the control I wanted of them. So um, when uh, the year I graduated, which was 83, is the year the DX7 you know, came out. Make a little side trip. Um, I would drive into San Francisco regularly to check out stuff at the music stores, and the original GS1 and GS2 had already made their debut. Um, and one of the original programmers for Yamaha, Gary Lewenberger, had a very nice store um, in San Francisco, and I would go there on the weekends and hang out for hours playing gear I could never afford. So um, I would just clomp around on that and, again, had some experience on playing those instruments. Back in those days, nothing was programmable. Um, but that's what really got my ear into, you know, these machines are just really cool. So then when the DX7 came out, um, I just like had to get one. Um, was able to get one probably four or five months after it actually was released. Um, thankfully, my friend's dad, you know, had some connections to get gear or whatever. So, um, yeah, I got, my, I got my DX7 probably... I want to say maybe June, July, August at the latest of 83, went right to the um, University of Southern California Academic uh, Library and picked out all of Chani's research and 
started reading it and started playing around and started deconstructing all the sounds. And that's how I transitioned from analog to digital and that's how I uh, got into digital. So you came at it from, obviously, from a Synclavia route, uh, because if I'm not mistaken, Synclavia licensed, sub-licensed the technology from Yamaha, who had licensed it from Stanford. So Correct. you kind of came at it through that correct route, so to speak. Yes, and because, uh, you know, New England Digital had the first, you know, implementation of it, you know, out there, you know, because the Synclavia 1 predated the GS1 and GS2, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So then, then you got to the DX7, which, um, to, 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 for want of a better word, simplified FM synthesis compared to what had gone before. Um, now you had this you know, programmable system, but it was very you know, menu-driven, not, not at all analog-like. Then you said you took Dr. John Chowning's research and started getting into the weeds and, and breaking stuff down, so you kind of reverse-engineered stuff. Well... Yeah. Um, to explain how that sort of goes is that it's like, I had it on order, I was waiting for it. So it's like, well, let's start figuring out what it does. Um, and so what's interesting is in the generation of the commercially available FM synthesizers, compared to the original Synclavier implementation, the GS1, the GS2, and the DX7, DX7 is actually the most complex implementation of it. Um, it just so happens that... Um, you know, like anything computer or chip-based, the first things are really expensive and all the trickle-downs get cheaper as the power goes up. So uh, the Synclavier was uh, f um, single operator pairs, four of them. Uh, the GS1 uh, and GS2 were similarly um, these types of pairs. They had some interesting, you know, uh, interactions on a couple of them, but they did not have the massive algorithm choices that you had in the DX7. But uh, getting back to the research, it's like, okay, this is something completely different. I know nothing about it. Let's start figuring out how it works. So that's why I pulled the research up because I knew we were building things from nothing, starting with sine waves. And I wanted to get some direction on you know, what I was going to expect when I started changing ratios and modulation index and all that. And so um, one of the things that struck me most about looking at his papers were all the graphs that he had of the index harmonic, the phase inversions, the Bessel function math, and all that stuff to realize that they called it linear FM, which is the process of which it modulates frequency. But in reality, the responses that you got were anything but linear. So that came in really handy when I started deconstructing the sounds that came in the presets and started doing my own sounds, already kind of knowing it was not going to respond any way that I was familiar with from an analog synth. Um, and I think that's what got me over the hump that so many guys didn't get over, is that it was so different than an analog synth. I mean, forget the single slider of the menus. It was just like, it didn't do what you thought it was going to do. Yeah. I, ha I have a friend who's a, a big analog synthesis uh, fan, and you know, we have lots of discussions about the, the merits and, and the, the shortcomings of, of both analog and digital. And the one thing he says that he doesn't like about FM is the unpredictability, the fact that you don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen when you change a particular setting. Whereas with an analog paradigm, whether it's uh, an ARP Odyssey, a Pro 1, a CS80, 
if you grab hold of the filter cutoff, you you know what you you know what to expect. Would you kind of go along with that? Yes, um, and I love this question because in a lot of uh, conversations I've had um, with the guys at Yamaha and uh, other people regarding you know how how I approach and how I look at that, there's a tiny disconnect that a lot of people miss, which is ear training and experience. It's only unpredictable because it's not similar to what you already have learned. And for me, in knowing the background and then pulling apart and deconstructing the presets, I was using all that time to train my, let's just call it, ear, in other words, I'm getting a sonic memory of what happens when you, if, X, if I do X, Y happens. So. This gets down to something that I've been told John Chowning says as well. You don't need to know anything about how FM works. You just need to hear at what happens when you do something. And if you like it, do more. And if you don't, <laughs> do something else, which honestly is how you approach analog synthesis. The difference is, is that one comes from building something from nothing. So there's a lot more work to do as opposed to having something and taking it out, which subtractive is mostly what happens in analog. So you can't screw up analog per se, okay? But you can build something very unusual in FM. But at the end, you know, people have asked me this. It's like, after, you know, how do you program now? It's like, I do it all by ear, but it's because I have all the experience of I've tweaked so many interactions for you know, in so many variations, it's like I kind of have a sonic memory of what's going to happen, you know. Um, is it going to be exactly? No, but that's what you tweak. You tweak by ear. So um, over the years in, you know, talking about how to approach X, Y, Z, or whatever, you know, people say, but what's the algorithm you need to do for that kind of sound? I go, any of them. What do you mean? Well, any of them. doesn't matter. There's nothing special about an algorithm. When people say, well, how do you know if you need a 1 to 3 or a 2 to 3 or a 1 to 4? It's like, well, okay, the math tells me I'm going to kind of get a ballpark, but at the end of the day, you got to just pick one and say, does that sound like how I want it to hear? You know? So, you know, it's like um, the best way to explain it is like, you know, everybody knows how to color with some crayons, but, you know, not everybody can take a palette of oils and make a fantastic painting, okay, without a lot of practice, okay? Yes, more practice is needed in FM because it builds from nothing in ways that, um, have a much wider tam tamper range, frankly, than uh, subtractive synthesis does. So you have more work to do. Um, and you just have to put the time in. And if you have good ears, you take the time. It's actually not that hard. Because that is the, the perennial uh, comeback with FM is that it's just so darn difficult to get something out of it. That's what people always say. It's what I always come up against when I talk about it is, oh, it's just so hard to program and you have to go through menu diving. There's not enough knobs per function. And, you know, I, I get that. And I see recent efforts um, in terms of third-party controllers and software things that uh, that supposedly make that, that process easier. Do you, when you're programming with FM, you know, do you use the, the controls on the synthesizer? Do you use software editors? Have you got third-party controllers? What, what's your process? That is a very interesting question that you're going to get a totally bizarre answer. Um, a factor of how long I've done this 
and how many weird breadboards on a box I've had to use. In general, I'm a front panel guy, in general. However, an appropriately designed computer editor is very uh, useful, um, but I have some very strange idea on what that entails. And that is, for me, the ideal editor uh, for an FM synth is essentially what they have up on Yamaha Sound Mondo for their Reface DX. Oh, yes. Okay, or how some of the old uh, Commodore 64 editors were, um, which is, I just want a spreadsheet with numbers. That's really all I want, you know, but because I know what all those numbers mean at this point. And um, so when I'm using uh, an editor, um, what I like is I just like to put numbers in by 10 key. I like to uh, tab, shift, tab, and use cursor controls to air, navigate to my box, and I can literally spreadsheet up a sound in no time. So I do use them when they are that type. Um, you know, I do a, I've done a lot of work for uh, Yamaha recently on Montage, um, and they have a reasonable development editor, um, but in a weird way, since the navigations don't work the way that are comfortable for me from a speed standpoint, I basically program on the front panel. So it's the mid-1980s. You've got your DX7. You are learning it inside out from research notes and your own experience. What happens that gets you to the, the DX7 Mark II and programming uh, those sounds that I guess for, for FM nerds like me are some of the best FM sounds out there? What, what, what was that, that process from owning a DX7 to getting to work on them? Right. So, so basically, at that time, I was just doing it for my own fun. You know, again, I was doing work for my friend's uh, uh, dad, so because he also would use a DX in the studio, and playing live with my own our own band. I got the DX7 II um, right when it came out, just because it was like, well, a lot of people love the 12-bit grunge, the DX7 one. Okay. For me, it was it was more annoying than it was pleasurable, and so um, and being able to play with a DX5 and seeing the fact that you could you know dual up these things, um, I thought to myself, hey, well that's really really uh, cool. So when that came out, the fact that it had the floppy drive and it had the dual engine, it's like okay, I'm all over that. So I I bought that um, you know again very early on. So. In those three or four year period of time, I had struck up a very good friendship with a uh, owner of a local mom and pop music store. And when he had the DX7 II, I used to do custom libraries for him. Um, because at the time, you know, when you would buy from Guitar Center or Sam Ash or whomever, you know, and you were buying any Yamaha gear, everybody wanted to know, what library do I get at it? Because no one was going to program the thing. So I started doing just stuff for him so he had his own you know custom library um and then first inflection point was you went from analog to digital and then you went from dig digital rev one or gen one 
to digital Rev 2 because, you know, you always, you always had fair light, you always had emulators and stuff like that, and they were trying to, you know, mix all these technologies. So, you know, the DX7 and its sound, it was different, it was great. You know, where could you get 16 notes of aftertouch velocity sensitivity for two grand when a Jupiter 8 was four grand, right? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. So, um, obviously, for better or worse, it took over the market for synthesizers. And then you had phase two, and phase two was the D50. And the D50 introduced sample snippets, but more importantly, onboard FX. So now there's a whole nother different sound, you know, that came in that was different. So the fact I was doing custom work for my friend's store when, you know, D50 came in, that was where everybody was gravitating to because now it was the next shiny, shiny light bulb to, to gather everybody to. So he said, that's just so, so, so sad, Manny. I said, I know you love the FM stuff, but it's kind of like dead because, you know, we're just not moving this. Everybody wants the D50s. It's got like the new sound. I go, show me what it is. And everybody comes in and goes, wow. So he, you know, played me a bunch of sounds. And I said, okay. So about eh, two and a half weeks later, I came back with a disc. Okay. Hey, George, check this out. Loaded up, and that's where I started doing what became sort of the sound sets that you talked about, which was utilizing FM to emulate, quote, other synthesis types, or more importantly, just showing again the breadth of FM that, uh, you know, is possible um, using techniques that I don't want, I don't want to say aren't readily uh, evident, but Again, you know, uh, mother of necessity, as it were. And that is, how do you make something that sounds chorused? How do you add some of these, uh, you know, breathy noise bursts? How do you uh, add things that are like pseudo-reverb tails to give it, let's just call it a non-FM sound? And so I made a disc of, um, you know, copying what he told me was everybody's favorite, you know, D50 patches. Um, uh, a lot of them were just dual voices, appropriately done. There was a couple of them that were unison poly because that was one of the key features, unison poly and the multi-LFO mode that you could turn off the synchronization in terms of creating things that were very, you know, fair lighty, synclavier, you know, uh, D50-ish. Um, and just doing that. So um, we, you know, named them all the same uh, voice names. So if somebody came in and just said, I want this, that, but then they still want the DX, what it, you know, it can do, which the D50 you know, couldn't in terms of a wider timbre range, then he started selling DX7s again, you know, and abnormally so. You know, his rep was like, seriously, this store is just one guy. You know, his mom worked in the back booking the music lessons. He had you know, two part-time college kids helping out. And, you know, he was selling on a monthly basis, you know, as many D more DX7s than Guitar Center was in, in L.A., and so um, his rep said, what's going on? He says, well, I have this disc and you, you need to talk to this guy. He's programming for me. Maybe you should do some work for you. So that's sort of the long story. So eventually my name filtered into Yamaha and I got called to do a rescue project. And what the rescue project was, was to officially do voicing of the DX7 II to have sounds that were all in the timbre space that was popular for everything that was going on right at that time. So we did a series of a number of titles and the guys that were also involved uh, uh, doing that um, from market research and other standpoints uh, were um, 
the core that ended up forming SoundSource Unlimited uh, back in the day. So we did a bunch of accessories voice sets and uh, it culminated into doing the FDE project. Uh, the gray matter board had come out uh, for the Mark II, which increased a lot of capabilities for it. And um, that was a really cool thing that before other workstation type things were out there, so even before the M1, Yamaha had the ability to make their DX7 a workstation. Uh, they decided to make it an official product because people couldn't get the boards installed necessarily unless they were you know, in the right metropolitan area. So we went into the warehouse and we opened them up, we installed them all, we soldered the boards, we loaded up the sounds, and Yamaha USA had a special SKU number that was the FDE that you could buy from a store ready to rock. And so that bought it some more time again until the M1 came around and you know, basically that was the transition of the last curve of that level of FM for Yamaha. So not only the dawn of a new form of synthesis and kind of mass production, but also the dawn of a whole new industry that you became you know, heavily involved with, with, with presets. Before then, uh, you know, there weren't many programmable synthesizers with memory patches. Obviously, the Prophet mm -hmm. 5 had those, but getting that data between machines was, was virtually impossible. Along comes the DX7, which has MIDI, of course, which you can transmit data between, but it also has the all-important cartridge slot as well as the tape interface. And so now the distribution of preset sounds was was just easy to do. So very fortuitous time for you to to fall into that, really, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and um, yeah, you sort of hit the nail on the head there, which was you know, DX7 was one of the original MIDI devices, and you know at that point you were starting to see the original patch editors and librarians and such, and because it was awkward to program, you know, that did definitely start the third party business. You know, here, here in the States, um, you know, one of the first companies to really start that for the DX was a company called KeyClick, uh, which was started by Bo Tomlin, who was a LA session guy who had a lot of involvement with uh, Yamaha uh, at that time as well. And, you know, back in those days, um, just with a MIDI interface, you'd, it was still on the five and a quarter soft floppies. You know, that was the format. Um, of course, there are also people, um, and they they did as well. Sold uh, the cartridges, you know. But the the price of the cartridges was you know tough for real big mass market because um, a blank cartridge from Yamaha at the time was like ninety dollars, you know, blank. And unless you were going to make ROMs, you know, everybody was just overwriting RAM carts, and the uh, upfront cost to do that was high. So. Uh, but some companies did actually do some custom ROMs, especially in Japan. A lot of stuff came out. But yeah, the DX7 was uh, really well supported with third-party sounds, either through uh, computer loading disks or uh, special ROM or RAM cartridges for a number period of time. Um, but it was still sort of niche just because the, um, you know, the costs were relatively expensive. But the Mark II, since it had the disk drive, that really was a game changer because you could cut the cost significantly for the user because floppy disks were not expensive and they were not expensive to, to, to duplicate. And so it really took off. And of course, everything else around it started coming out. Remember, you, and Sonic Mirage was starting to hit around this time. Um, and so you had the libraries for sample disks. You know, Yamaha had the TX-16W, uh, you know, and samplers were starting to come out. You know, uh, they were at probably the third or fourth generation emulator, they're probably up to the emulator too, and people that bought that, you know, you were just buying those discs. So 
as more of the computer-based uh, digital synths, you know, started coming to market, there was more of that. And so, yeah, it uh, really expanded uh, as other guys, you know, came on the line. You, know, you got your K2000s, you know, Kawhi, everybody's diving into the, the market and they all needed sounds. And so, um, yeah, it expanded really quickly. So the DX7 um, Mark II has had its time in, 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 the, in the spotlight. It's fading away. New boys are coming on the block. Um, Yamaha move on to the SY and the TG range, which brings in uh, samples you know, in a similar way to, to, to Roland and the way they brought samples in. But they're, they're, Yamaha are now mixing FM with, with sample technology. And how different was that for you to, to now you know, embrace this world of digital sampling? So um, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to give you a little historical lineage on that transition. Um, because when you look at the 80s and you look at like what were the kings of the market, you know, you had your DX7, then you had your D50, then you had your M1. Uh, and the M1 was, you know, D50 on steroids, quote, full samples, workstation capabilities, better effects, more sophisticated, you know, mixing on that. So that's what sets sort of the template of the modern synthesizer, for better or worse, that we still see today in a lot of implementations. And so Yamaha had nothing in that space, and a DX7 with E was a very, you know, in the hands of somebody who would take the time, it was definitely usable, but it was, you know, just a bunch of hacks and, uh, you know, things to get it set up and going. Um, so they embarked on developing their next status of technology. So what was interesting is the development cycle of a whole new thing from scratch that was outside of their thinking was going to take a, a certain period of time. So they were looking for a way to leverage a workstation, full-on workstation products using their existing technology. So they brought in the gray matter response guys because they knew how to implement multi-temporality on their FM chips, the sequencer functions and all that stuff. And so um, they were trying to develop um, FM-based systems that we actually got to Protos and showed at NAMM called the Yamaha V80. And of course, the V50 was the little brother of that. And it's kind of interesting on those two products because the V80 um, was quite an interesting uh, beast because it actually had as part of its spec the expansion boards that they later had with all their PLG stuff, you know, in the CS6X, the S80s, and all that stuff. And that it was going to ship with the full-blown sequencer and just an FM engine, but you had slots where you could put your sample playback card, you could put your drum machine card, you could put all these cards in, and we showed all that at NAMM um, in um, private suite. And it, it got some, you know, pretty good responses because it integrated the effects and, and all that. And um, I don't want to say at the last minute, but the engineers were looking at that, looking at what they were going to be able to do to actually get the support. In other words, when are you going to get the drum machine card is really what it came down to. Because until they got that, I mean, I love FM drums and I'm pretty proud of all the FM drum work that I've done um, that are fine to do stuff with, but you really needed to have the sample drums to, to play. So they killed the product because the engineer said, we've got next gen SY coming along and we can move it up and get it out in X time frame. So rightly so, they didn't want to spend the money to tool up a literally a temporary one year product. But what they ended up doing was 
fast-tracking and getting the V50 going. So Yamaha's first workstation was the V50. And it's actually a really cool box, in all honesty, you know, because it's got the effects chips, it's got drum samples, it's got a four-op engine, you know, it's got the same uh, engine as the TX81Z, um, and it's a really cool little box. So they bought their little bit of time with the V50 until the SY series came out. So the SY was originally conceived to basically be their version of an M1 plus. And the plus was they were going to have multiple synthesis systems because they obviously had all this FM technology. So they developed their own sample playback system, which was AWM, which is literally what an M1 is, multi-samples, filters, and a sequencer. But they developed AFM, um, which was their next generation uh, FM. And they put these two things together. And um, in the box, it was really kind of cool. And I've spoken about this in some other venues in that AFM and AWM can be used interactively in something that Yamaha calls real-time convolution modulation, or RCM, which is using a sample as a waveform as a modulator of, F of FM. Um, so as much as the DX7 was just sine waves, uh, the 81Z and the DX100 had, I think there are six or eight waveforms that they had. The AFM had 16 waveform choices, but now you could go really complex with a sample. The, I don't want to know if to say the intent, but one of the things that they had hoped to accomplish with their synthesis engine is utilizing that interaction as a resynthesizer. So this is going to get a little technical for a bit, but Yamaha FM is not frequency modulation, it's phase modulation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there is a lot of very important reasons why they do that. Um, and the number one reason for it is it's much more uh, simple to implement in their chips, but it also does something very important. Without getting out of the frequency and going to phase, um, you can't do feedback. Or let's just say you can't do feedback the way you need to. Because if you implement feedback in true FM, the pitch center changes as feedback changes. So in real time, you can't change a modulation index of a feedback operator. Otherwise, it's not what you want. But when you do it as phase modulation, you can. And so the Yamaha expansion of the original Chowning FM algorithm was implementing feedback. Now, why is feedback important? Um, it's important for a couple of reasons, but one of the main reasons why it's important is something you talked about, how guys aren't used to how FM works. Feedback tames, or maybe a better way to say it is, feedback analog, analogs up harmonic response with index. So it makes it behave more in tune to how a filter does. So it tames all the peaks and valleys in those Bessel functions so that you can get a sound brighter without changing the core balance of the inner harmonics. So that's how it came to be. So looping back around, why is this important? AFM 
in the SY series, besides the waveforms, actually also gave you phase control of every operator. So you have initial phase control. And what that does is that allows for um, basically frequency shifting of whatever modulator is coming into it. So the early stages of the SY algorithm, when you dive into the pages, they had something that would show up in the little screen of all the little patch points as OPH. And OPH was how they set up the FM section to be interacted from the sample section instead of using Channing's equation to use their modification of what's called a Hilbert transform. Um, I'm going to butcher this, so anybody who knows all this specifically, don't put the comment section. <laughs> um, but basically, you can analyze audio signals, extract a bunch of phase information from them, and then use less complex signals to reconstruct the original one by reconstructing the phase. So RCM, the original intent was to get dynamic samples playing back by utilizing the phase, reconstructing phase information in real time from all these FM al al uh, operators. So by having different phase shifts, different waveforms, and different velocity sensitivities and keyboard scanning and kind of stuff, you could now take a static sample and get a harmonic playability that was more in tune to what a multi-sample would sound like, but just using one sample. That was their goal uh, of it. For a myriad of reasons, it did not work as planned. So it was removed and they left the patch point there um, where you can feed your sample in, but it's just regular straight FM math. And so a lot of people over the years is like, wow, we got this new, and they go, but what do we do with it? So here is the issue that, it's not my issue, but people say, it doesn't seem very useful. And if you understand the math of FM, you'll understand why, is that FM does not need complex harmonic structures because the interaction generates tons of harmonics. So when you start using complex waveforms as modulators, you have a very limited range of modulation index before you just get, I don't want to say unusable noise, but it just gets very, very harsh very, very quickly. And one of the other quirks is, is that when you use a sample, all the harmonics are recorded from the original instrument. And those aren't also perfectly in tune, which means you have all these out of tune things interacting with in tune things because the first five harmonics are in tune then all the upper harmonics are all skewed sharp and then they all come down. So that's why it does that. But what is interesting is Yamaha included a bunch of stuff in digital waves, which are what I call reduced harmonic complex waves. Those are the waves you wanna do all your RCM stuff with. Okay, because now you have timbre spaces that you have that are unique, but they don't get out of control. But, you know, taking the piano sample and trying to throw it through the FM thing to make a super piano, okay, basically doesn't work. Okay, or let's just say it doesn't work well. Um, do I have stuff that does it to give more playability? Yeah, but, you know, it's like a 10% gain. And that's just because you don't want to use a ton of harmonic content as a modulator because it just gets out of control really quick.
So SYTG moves uh, onwards, and I can't remember if there was anything specific between those, and because I think Yamaha just decided that FM really wasn't where it was at anymore until the 90s, and we saw the emergence of the FS1R module, which again was horribly um, confusing to to most people because it's this one U rack mount, but it's got probably certainly to my ears because I've I don't own one unfortunately, but to my ears it's one of the the most beautiful sounding FM engines, and it also builds in formant shaping, which if my research is is correct, um, Dr. Chowning said was the next logical step for that that form of synthesis was to introduce formant shaping and this this module flopped it was only around for about yeah. a year or so mm-hmm. uh, and yet now it's one of the most sought after objects of of many synthesists i mean i've been looking for one for years and they whenever they come up they're ridiculously priced um but you worked on that one so how did you find th- that implementation of fm yeah What's really interesting is, um, I hope you won't find this story just superfluous, but it's, Yamaha has always had an interesting manner on which they implement things in their synthesizers. And it goes back to their CS series um, in terms of like they do destination routing as opposed to you know, source routing or some things just kind of like you know, are quirky on you know, how it puts together. And it's not good or bad, but they just have a weird way of doing things. And one of the things that, for me in the SY, I re- it's got really, really good sounding digital filters, but their implementation is exquisitely quirky. And to get them to do what you would normally do on an M1 or whatever derivative is actually kind of a pain in the butt. You can do it, it's just that it's so much more work than it needs to be. And then the way that you do things like add velocity sensitivities to it and modulation depths, it's just weird. So the FS comes around, and there's two things that are really cool about the S, uh, the FS1R. One is it's the first synth that they, let me take that back. They kind of fixed this all in the EX5 and the EX7. They finally did filters like the rest of the world, <laughs> meaning on how you apply your modulations, all that stuff. Plus it was multi-mode, um, and you know, one of the things that happened between FS and uh, DX7 and SY is the one you see behind me, which people don't realize is important for another reason, which is the VL. The VL, besides being a physical model, also did much more sophisticated filter modeling and effects modeling. And so that was carried through the EX5 and so Yamaha is really getting much better at doing their modeling of everything. So now you get the FS1R and you have multi-mode filters that sound really good. And the structure of it is basically carried through to what's in montage. I mean, they have basically kept just, you know, improving clock speeds and stuff of those implementations. Um, so that's cool. And then, you know, the velocity works right. The uh, modulations to attack rates and all that stuff, everything works the way you anticipate it to work. So they fixed it up and that's really cool. And then the second half is that they have this new engine that has the noise operators and the format behavior of the regular operators. So it's very interesting when we were doing that project because 
you know, sometimes we get things that are very well specified and sometimes we get things dropped in our lap that fall under the, we don't know what it does. Um, the VLs was obviously one of those projects. You know, like we know what we designed it to, but we really don't know what it does in a musically useful way. And so the FS was kind of like that as well. Um, the mindset of the development of it is, what is FM good for? And that is dynamic harmonic response that is very, quote, acoustic or real instrument sounding. You know, but what is it not so good at? Well, it's not so good at noises and if you really want to do acoustic instruments, there's lots of um, harmonic content, there's a lot of noise content, and there's a lot of format behavior. So that's where they said, okay, well, let's just put this together. So we get this plopped down and we start to play around with it. Now we got to figure out what the hell we're going to do with it. And we found a couple of really interesting things that you can do with this box. Uh, one is it's a very low-fi sampler, which some guys have really, you know, thought is really interesting. Uh, uh, cool use of it. Um, it's also an exquisitely versatile vocoding type of device. Um, and then it is now a enhanced FM engine uh, and FM synthesizer as well. So you have all these capabilities in the box that you can't see a dang thing from the front panel with four knobs and menu diving that's just like, ugh. Now, thankfully, I never programmed it from the front panel. <laughs> I always, always had a dev system that, you know, eventually a version of it was what was released with the editor that came in the box because you have to, you have to bring them in the box. But um, what was, you know, interesting in what we were doing with this is something else that they did, which was it read original DX7 SysX. So what was cool about that was you know, enough time had passed that it was kind of like a little bit of an FM, you know, renaissance. Um, but more importantly, hundreds of thousands of sounds that you could fly into this box. And so you could use them just as is, but more importantly, you could put great sounding filters on it, great sounding effects. So a lot of stuff that people wanted to always do with their DX7, um, you know, you could do right off the bat. So um, what we started to do was to enhance those voices for better acoustic control, as it were. So we would take these format operators to build in formats in the guitar sounds, in the road sounds, use the noise operators to do more thunks and clicks and clacks and pick noises, and put all these things on the knobs on the front of it so that you could actually control some of this stuff in real time. This is just speculation on my part. You know, because it literally, you couldn't use it without a computer, okay? And if you didn't like what was unique about it, which was that weird lo-fi sampler vocoded type of sound, okay, it, why would you, it was sort of like lost in the market as it were. And um, so yeah, it was a <laughs> failure to the degree that, you know, they were, you know, I don't wanna say they couldn't give them away, but you know, they were selling them ridiculously cheap to dealers. You know, they were offering ridiculously cheap to employees. So, you know, but regardless of what it goes for today, you know, I, I'm smiling because you say you've been looking for one. I have one new in box, unopened, 
sitting on my shelf um, that I bought for $350 back when they gave them away. And it's still in the box. Um, But what's interesting about it is, like anything, when things are really cheap, a lot of people get access to it that wouldn't otherwise, and they find some unique way to use it. So some people think this is like totally off the wall, but it is absolutely completely accurate as, a, as an analogy. So the FS1R has become legendary for the exact same reason that the Roland 808 drum machine and the TB303 did, which was they were flops, they were dirt cheap, a bunch of people got them, and then found some new thing to do with it. And that's what happened with the FS1R, is that when you had the chance to dive into it, it's like, wow, this does a lot. And more so than other Yamaha products, you know, it suffered from, you know, the disease that all of us call shipping deadlines. Right. How much can you accomplish in the sound set on the time frame that you have available? So uh, the thing that it just became really known for is these, you know, weird use of the format sequences and all these weird form behaviors, throwing them on controllers, and it was a texture and a sound that if you're into certain, you know, types of, you know, musical genres, is it's the only thing that can do it, and it sounds fantastic doing it. And so a number of uh, very creative individuals started turning out content with it, and people go, "What the hell's that?" You know, and um, yeah, so it's 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 a really cool box. The approach that I had from programming it is very similar to what I do with everything I get from Yamaha, which is they give it to us. There's a spec, there's an outline of what's supposed to do, and I throw that right out, and I start poking in all the places to try to literally do everything it's not supposed to. In other words, the first thing I do with any of their systems is I try to break them. So I investigate the extremes of every parameter. Um, I, whatever, if, you know, nobody in a million years would want to patch this to that, well, I'm going to do that first. Because again, I want to find out what quirks it has, because if I want to make cool, interesting stuff, in my experience, those are always in the cracks of the synthesis system, so you want to find those right away. So um, they gave me the original analysis software um, to generate the format sequences and stuff. Um, And so I really played in a really wide spectrum of totally ridiculously avant-garde stuff to very standard DX stuff to try to find what the sweet spot of it was. And um, for me, you know, what I, I wrote this in a report and I said, I think how you're going to catch most people's attention with this is what it does in a pseudo vocoder sense, because that is usable without having to be editable, whereas using it as a lo-fi sampler, you can't unless you have all the software and all that kind of stuff. So I suggested a bunch of stuff. I gave them a bunch of examples of things that I thought, you know, you should have for format sequences and send it off to them. Next thing I know, things that I suggested to them to do professionally, they ended up generating off the cassettes I sent them. I literally sent them, you know, cassette because a digital file, you know, back in those days to transfer over the internet was like, you know, ridiculous. So I gave them a, a chromium cassette 
of a bunch of things that I thought would make for good format sequences of me doing them vocally. You know, some of them were, you know, whatever sounds, some of them were just, you know, I don't want to have to build, you know, by scratch. It's like, analyze those things. So I was just doing things like that to pop stuff in. So anyway, I just thought it was hilarious that, oh, really? You used what I sent you? <laughs> but the first demo in it, you know, utilizes that aspect of it, which is the, um, what I call the chordal vocoding. You know, it's a monophonic format sequence that you can play over uh, uh, chordal voicings that gives you a really cool talking synthesizer um, thing. But it also has format sequences that you do that, you get those timbre shifts over, over moving um, harmonic structures that you can't generate any other way. And yeah, it's just a, it's a really cool box that nobody appreciated in its time. So the FS1R brought in this, um, well, it wasn't the first, obviously, because the, there was a, an eight-operator FM expansion module, I believe, for one of the electone organs that's quite rare. But um, it kind of popularized eight-operator FM to, I'd say the masses, but probably not so much because of the, the numbers that it sold. However, in recent years, Yamaha has kind of come back with uh, with its FM with the montage and, and of course the Mo DX, which takes that whole FM engine, just puts it into a, a single unit. And of course we've got the Reface DX as well. Now I understand you've you've worked with all three of those machines. Yes. Um it's it's a funny story, uh actually. Um after I'm trying to think, after FS one R, you left one out. You left out the uh, DX two hundred. Oh I did, yes. That's true. Um, and the only reason why I mention that is because the last, so from basically DX7 through AN and DX200, you know, I, I basically worked on, I won't say everything that came out of their ProSynth division, but pretty much everything. So, um, but those were the last two official products I worked on and when I went on sabbatical. Um, basically getting on with the rest of my life, having a family and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what was interesting is um, I still go to NAMM regularly and I'm still very friendly with all, all the Yamaha guys. And over the time when I was in doing this is, um, you know, I, I did stuff for Korg. I did stuff for Kurzweil. I did stuff for Ensonic. Uh, I did some stuff for Emu. Um, and so, you know, I know all the guys and that stuff. So I always like to go to NAMM shows just for, you know, meeting people and, you know, seeing gear. Um, and I remember um, hearing about, you know, Montage and the Reface uh, DX, you know, coming out. And so I went to the NAMM show where they had those uh, out and was, you know, playing around with them and ran into uh, my good friend, friend Nate uh, Cheddar. And I said to I said to him, first thing I said to him, hey, Nate, how's it going? So I just looked at him straight in the eye and said, dude, you guys released FM products and didn't call me? You know, my number hasn't changed in 15 years. And he, he smiled. He goes, I have a project for you. Now, truth be told, part of, it, part of that was my fault because uh, while, Yacht, while Montage and Reface were still in development, uh, they had this big 40th anniversary celebration here in LA. And I was at that and Nate at that time said, I have some stuff I think you might be interested in. And I don't remember what happened, but I never followed through to call him. So it's not really all his fault. Um, um, but I, uh, I neglected to uh, follow up for whatever reason. 
Um, but yeah, so they introduced those two products that uh, have FM implementations. And uh, they're really both very interesting for a couple of reasons. Reface is very interesting because of how they implemented it. It's a lot more versatile than people think. And um, one of the things that Nate talked to me about at that NAMM show was, he said, you know, Yamaha's got all this great history, but we don't have any like official content on anything on how to program it or approach it. Would you be interested in doing something for us? And he talked to me about what was going to become the Sound Mondo platform and the Yamaha synth uh, page on it. And that came into me starting to do my tutorial series. So as part of the Yamaha Synth website and with associated libraries and examples through SoundMondo, um, you know, we put together, you know, a quote official, you know, Yamaha series of FM programming techniques and stuff. And so um, I started that, uh, doing that on Reface. And um, it was very well received. We did a lot of uh, uh, patches for it and it's, you know, it covers a ridiculous you know, breadth of uh, timbres that you wouldn't anticipate from a four-op engine, but it has to do with the fact that there, uh, that um, square wave, saw wave feedback, and a couple of unique algorithms. And this is the thing that some people, you know, don't understand. Just having an onboard effects chip, even if it doesn't do a lot, does a lot, you know. Um, so um, we did we did that full project, and then. Um, did the same thing for Montage, explaining FMX, because FMX is the strict FM side of an FS1R. Then that got me officially back into develop, doing development voices for all the various firmwares that came up as they added new features. So starting with the um, uh, 2.5, was it 2.5? Anyway, the last you know two firmware uh, updates um, I did you know, contributing voices for again and and such. So, yeah, so I'm sort of back in the fold. And it seems FM is is making another comeback because it, it never goes away. It just kind of fades away and then something new happens. You know, we, we, we for example, you know, we get the the SY and the TGs with the addition of, of AWM and AFM and then you have the FS1R, which is extra operators and formant shaping. Now we have montage um modi x with the with the fmx engine refacing that nice little compact unit and there are whispers and rumors that other companies are working on fm synthesizers korg have got the the volca the, the little tabletop thing that that even reads um dx7 sysx as somebody who is in at that kind of that level that you are where do you think fm can go next or does it have a future? Oh, I think it has a future. Um, I think the reason why it's still around is because, you know, I believe it is, of all the things out there, it's the sweet spot of versatility versus complexity. And I say that because of the context of what I do as a sound designer, anybody who just wants to do whatever, okay? There's a famous, you know, uh, Wendy Carlos quote, which is, the, this is a paraphrase, but it's like, you know, the best thing about additive synthesis is that you can create anything. The, the bad news is you have to create everything. So if you think about the context of, I can control an infinite number of harmonics with an infinite number of staged envelopes, 
to make whatever movement I want with any controller. Yeah, you can make any sound in the world, you know. It's one of the reasons why I wish I had a GDS system or a Synergy with a programmer. Um, but the, the time is ridiculous, okay. So FM is, in, inhabits a really nice space for me, which is I can get so much of that core level of control without having to do that much work. Now, it's, it's more work than an analog synth, but an analog synth or subtractive synthesis or any of these other types of synthesis don't give you the timbre space. They have an FM. So for me, it's always going to be around because unbeknownst to many people is the techniques that it uses can sound like whatever the hell you want it to. One of the things that's quite interesting is that, you know, I've been programming my SY for, what, 27 years. Um, I can pretty much make it sound like whatever the hell I want to. And if you've ever gone up to the uh, SY group on Facebook or seen some of the posting to on YouTube, um, FM can be virtual analog. It can be Gen 1, shut up, don't play electronic piano 1 preset again, electric piano sound. Um, it can mimic physical modeling. It can do all these things. Um, and it does so in a manner that is so computationally efficient that it has a lot of interest. Um, I do a lot of things with montage that are... Um, the biggest strength about montage is less the FM engine because there's some significant limitations it has. It has some significant things that the SY doesn't, but what it has is the real-time controllability of so many important parameters, which none of their other systems have. So, you know, I have stuff on the montage that it's going to sound really weird. It sounds more, I can make it sound more like a VP1 than a VP1 does. And uh, it takes a lot less effort for me to do it. Okay. Now, obviously, I have an experience and background with all those things to be able to do that. But the point is, is that it's capable of it. And so when you th see things like FM7 and FM8 that are available as soft sense in, um, you know, all the Dext and all these other kinds of things, it's just so easy to implement and it's got a huge range. And if you take the time and don't fall into the stereotype, I mean, you get a level of control you don't get in other, other synthesis systems with so much less effort, okay, and create anything from, I can, I can make you the biggest, fattest, silkiest, you know, uh, analog sample hybrid string patch all in FM, okay, and I can also, you know, make a high index sound that's going to take your head off, you know, and then you can go and do real subtle shifting stuff that Eno did in, you know, uh, music for airports, you know. It's, you know, and there's not that many uh, synthesis systems that can literally go from zero to a million and back with a moderate amount of input. Manny, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear your insights into this, to your experience and your history. So thank you ever so much for, for talking to us today. Yeah, no worries. And here, let me, let me, let me play you out with something.
Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Before you go, make sure you visit the Sound on Sound podcast page at soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts where you can explore all the other great content playing across the other channels. I'm Rod Puricelli, and this has been a failed Muso production for Sound on Sound.